Welcome to Dragon Talk, ladies oh. and gentlemen. My name is Greg Tito, and I'm joined by... Shelly Mazzanoble. Shelly Mazzanoble, you're Hi. one of my favorite people. You're one of my favorite people. Because you uh, sing and dance on a... And on lift a, you <laughs> where we belong. Thank you yes. for whenever I have a stupid quote of a song that comes out that you just... I go with Jump it. right in. I you go Jump with it. right in. Yeah. That's why you were good people. That's why. <laughs> That's the only reason. You know who else is a good person? Who's? Joe Manganiello. Yep. I'm so excited. Uh, we got to talk to him. Oh, I well, got to talk to him. Let's rephrase that. It's true. I got to talk to him. Mm-hmm. Because you were busy with That's something? probably the restraining order, but oh, let's just say that's right. I'm busy. You finally want, you were getting busy while <laughs> being busy. I'm very confused. What? <laughs> I meant like he had one against me, not the other way around. Oh. That was the joke. Right. Which he doesn't. It's a joke. <laughs> But it, it, this, is, this is what they call humor, people, when you come up with a ridiculous premise. Right. Uh, but maybe people won't think it's that ridiculous. Well, no, but you were doing really important stuff for yep. Avalon Hill. Yes. And you couldn't, you, you otherwise would have uh, dropped everything. Games. You were selling your games. Selling my games. Uh, what are your games that are coming out? Oh, just a little one called Axis and Allies and Zombies. And what? Bob Ross's. Wait, that should be an expansion. Axis and Allies and Bob Rosses. Yes. Nobody's going to fight the Bob Rosses. <laughs> That's what makes it so funny because he's a pacifist. He's just yes. like, I don't know, guys. We're Switzerland. Why don't we just paint some trees over here? Really happy Russia. trees. Oh, my God, the zombies! Ah! My trees! Oh, no! Yeah, that's what. That's all right. So that one, yep. That game is pretty cool. And then we also have... Bob Ross legacy. Oh, wait. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> betrayal poor, legacy. Poor went out for Bob Ross. Betrayal at Bob Ross's house. <laughs> <laughs> These are some really creepy trees. Yeah. We're making creepy trees. Creepy Ooh, there's trees a creepy little girl. Bloody little pond. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we call it a cistern because it's where the cisterns were killed. <laughs> you know what would be betrayal at Bob Ross's house? What? If he was just a total jerkwad. Right? Like, all of a sudden, he's like, you don't, you know who I Get am? Get your own soda! I'm Bob freaking Ross! <laughs> Get your own soda? <laughs> uh, that would be a betrayal. But you're supposed to be so nice. You're like, you're so nice, I Auntie. came here for the happy trees. You, there are no happy trees. You feed squirrels online, like, on camera? And you paint squirrels. But you won't give me any and then soda. You eat them? How dare you? Get out and shut up. Oh my gosh, there's so many skeletons in Bob Ross's closet. <laughs> That's why he's also the zombie. All right. There's uh, a Bob Ross game that's supposedly very good. Really? Yeah. I think I saw that yeah. at, uh, at uh, one of the conventions I went out yeah. to recently, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I'll check it out. But no, sadly, he has nothing to do with Betrayal Legacy. No. Yeah. But Rob Davio does. Rob Ross Davio. Bob, Bob Davio. <laughs> Bob Davio. <laughs> I hope he listens to this. this and he's like, what are you guys talking about? He's You're... not going to be on our show if he hears us. Exactly. Thomas. Right. So don't listen yeah. to it, Bob. Rob. No. Pause Bob, this. Bob Rob. Bob Rob. <laughs> uh, this is by far our best podcast ever. It's true. Uh, because we're also going to talk about Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes. Hey! That's coming out uh, May 29th. It is going to be available everywhere. Bob Ross, I believe, is on the cover. Uh, he is in uh, shaved. Like, he usually has that big, uh, uh, lots of curly yes. hair. We shaved it, yep. put him oh. on a thing, and there's a squirrel hidden in the artwork somewhere. 
Happy little goatees. Happy, happy little imps. Yes, happy little imps. <laughs> oh my God, I want to see a Bob Ross Tome of Foes. Please, if you were ever a fan oh, of, of Dragon Talk. Let's and make the stream bubble. You're a little bit of an artist. Make <laughs> some of this. Make some of this Bob Ross fused D and D art for me because it makes me laugh. Please. Um, but yeah, it's coming out May 29th. There's a special cover coming out in game stores uh, May 18th. Uh, both of them have the visage of Bob Ross. I mean, Morden Kanan uh, on the cover. It's good stuff. Uh, so go check that out. And we know that the alternate covers go fast. Yes. So please tell your local game store that you want a copy and uh, so get they order enough. And then walk into it and make sure you get it when, uh, they're when gone, it comes they're out. Gone. Right. Morden Kanan's Simple Foes has got lots of uh, monster entries for you to use in your game, but it also has tons of lore on conflicts of the multiverse. So it's a player and a DM book. For sure, right. yeah. There's player races that you can use, such as the Gith, uh, the Gith Yankee or the Gith Zarai. Uh, new Tiefling options. There's a Shatterkai option uh, for for players and stuff that's in there. Tons of stuff for uh, uh, any kind of uh, fan of Dungeons and Dragons. Really, it's okay. gonna be fun to read. Cool. Yeah, I'm excited. Me too. There is also a fun uh, game out there called Idle Champions of the Forgotten Realms. You should check it out. There's always tons of uh, events that go on uh, that unlock new characters from Dungeons & Dragons lore. Uh, There is, I mean, there's tons to choose from that have already been happening. So you can get Drist, you can unlock uh, uh, the halfling from from those companion stories. Um, There's also... Folks from Force Gray, so Arkin the Cruel, uh, who oh. is Joe Manganello's character, you're able to download and play in Idol Champions of the Forgotten Realms, uh, as well as Jamila, Hitch, and all of the fun characters, uh, Tyrol Tall Guy, uh, the, from, <laughs> from, from Force Gray's uh, season two, that you can jump into and play uh, right away. Good stuff That's fun. in there. It's on Steam in early access, uh, but it's basically feature complete, tons of fun stuff in there, so I, uh, I suggest you, you, you check it out. Okay. There's also uh, a really exciting thing coming from D&D Beyond, which is a mobile app. Yay! We I are have it on my phone right now. Super excited. Uh, it's got only the compendium content on it uh, right now as you're listening to this. More will be added, including the character sheet as well as the character builder. Uh, but we really wanted to make sure that the um, uh, companion and all the content that you can grab there is all available uh, for, uh, uh, for for you guys. So all the purchases within it uh, and within D&D Beyond are transferable. So if you buy it in the app, you will have access to it on your PC in the D&D Beyond uh, mobile uh, site or just a regular website and vice versa. If you buy it in the D&D Beyond, you can also check it out uh, on the mobile app. It's a great way for you to look up stuff that's coming. Uh, uh, at you, you know, or, or just to want to look up a spell or look up a, a, a something really important, you can check that out in the e-reader style uh, reader that is there, including bookmarks and favorites for when you're prepping for your game and stuff. Uh, good stuff, and it will even get more fully featured as time comes on. Perfect. Again, it's in beta, so they want feedback. Go to the D&D yes, website. Yes, they read all the feedback. And just do a verbal diarrhea of all the things Ooh. that you wish were in there. It's They read it. And they consume it. They dog food it. They dog food it. (laughs) Which is a term we learned in our uh, interview uh, with Adam Bradford and Todd Kenrick. Uh, Good stuff. Not a huge fan of it. I feel like there was a better word. Someone could have came up with a better word. Let's workshop uh, uh, slang and make it it better for people. It's just not a good. It's not intuitive. It's just not good. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. 
Uh, cool. And uh, you should all download Dragon Plus uh, while you're in the downloading mood uh, because there's a new issue out there, tons of fun stuff, including an, a free adventure by Thomas Foss and Scott Fitzgerald Gray called Crypts of Kelimvor, which takes a, um, a side quest in the Neverwinter MMO and turns it Ew. into a tabletop game that you can play, tabletop session That's that you can why. run. Thomas is involved. Right? Isn't that cool? Yeah. Uh, and there's also uh, Gribbit's Detective Agency, uh, another adventure uh, that takes place between seasons one and season two of the Dragon Friends podcast. Uh, and they are super funny and uh, totally, totally uh, worth your time. Uh, there's also another free adventure in there called The Risen Mists by Rich Lescowflyer. Wow. I'm going to get that totally wrong. I'm so sorry. Uh, but that's a uh, later level one uh, for uh, levels 11 through 15 in Mesro Baranzan, I believe. Uh, yeah. Or at least, no, no, I'm sorry. It says Mesro, uh, which I assumed was is, is Menzo Baranza, but that might be, some, that's actually Mesro. That's the uh, uh, city in Schult. Oh. Uh, and of course, there's a Port Nianzaro comic from Jason Thompson in there, too. I that's love those comics. So good to check out and download uh, all at the same time. Uh, cool. I think that's about all I want to throw it into. We got lots of fun content happening on the D&D Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash D&D, uh, including our live recordings of this here Dragon Talk podcast. So I suggest you jump in and uh, uh, join the conversation. Join it. Lots of uh, join it now. fun uh, shows on there, including Mike Merle's Happy Fun Hour, in which he uh, designs for your edification and education, uh, as well as t- uh, 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 Escape from the Birdcage. Uh, sorry, trapped in the birdcage, not escaped. It's well, trapped in the birdcage. You want to escape um, if you're trapped in a birdcage. Well, exactly. That's why it's easy to mix up. Second season. <sighs> that's true. All right, yeah. there you go. Sequel. Um, but that's Holly Conrad, uh, who plays Strix on Dice Camera Action, is dungeon mastering her own group through uh, Sigil, through the City of Doors in Planescape. Uh, really exciting, and uh, I, I, I'm just can't I'm wait to see for her. where really it goes. Good. Yeah, exactly. Good, good stuff. Good for you, Holly. Rock and roll, Holly Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> You ready uh, uh, to throw it to a fun yes, segment? Yes, my God. Oh, my gosh. So this segment is going to be Sage Advice with Mr. Jeremy Crawford. Sage Advice. I can't wait for this one. I love talking to Jeremy. Uh, and uh, we, we end up talking for a very long time. So strap in. It Whoa. is going to be worth it uh, for this segment. Okay. Are you strapped in? Yes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another segment of Sage Advice. I am Greg Tito, and I'm joined by Jeremy Crawford. Hi, everyone. How's it going? I'm doing well. Yeah? Yeah. All right, yeah, good. I had a long weekend because of the little snow flurry we had. It was snow flurry-y. I was away uh, uh, in San Juan Island, and we got quite a bit of snow when we were there. And, and I was also recuperating after finishing Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes. Congratulations. It's out the door. Yes. Exactly. It's being printed as we speak. Gosh, that's crazy to think about. We should do like one of those uh, 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 Mr. Rogers type segments where we go to like, this is how a book is made. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll start here and then it'll end up at the printer and like, right. they put the glue here. And then everybody could be like, oh, that's why the, all of our pages are messed up. We, we should remember that for a future Sage Advice segment. We I should. I could just talk about how a D&D book is made. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Put it in our brain pan. Yeah, because I'm, I'm going to actually write a note about that. Today, we, uh, we're trying to come up with a good topic for this. Uh, and uh, Mounted Combat is where we settled on to start with. Yes. Yeah, because we have never done a segment specifically on mounted combat, but it does generate a number of questions. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I mentioned I, I, I rarely use it because it doesn't, uh, 
you know, unless your character is made for mounted combat, it doesn't always make sense in my mind. Uh, but I'm sure we can figure out a little bit more about why uh, and, and how easy it is to, to integrate without it making, you know, uh, having to create all these choices ahead right, of time. Right, right. Uh, so, uh, what, what's the what's the basic of, of mounted combat that uh, you, you wanted to get across here? So, so first off, to get at the kind of bigger picture question of how to include mountain combat, why should you include it? Why is it even in the game? Yeah, uh, because a lot of adventures take place in dungeons inside castles with narrow corridors. And so there are many adventures where mounted combat won't even come up because mm. uh, D&D adventurers spend a remarkable amount of time indoors, not unlike those of us who play the game. <laughs> um, and so you might have multiple campaigns where your characters are never on a mount. Uh, but then suddenly you might have a, uh, a paladin in your group who's cast Fine Steed, or you might have a Trixie ranger beastmaster who is maybe a halfling or a gnome and figured out they can turn their uh, beast companion into a mount, which, by the way, is perfectly legal. Wow. Uh, and, or you might be uh, in a campaign that involves a lot of wilderness exploration uh, or might have a uh, more sort of warlike theme where cavalry charges are a thing. Uh, or you might have a more sort of like mythologically themed campaign where like heroes of old, you know, you are astride your mighty steed and yeah. you, you're going to face the dragon out on an open field. There are so many like tropes associated with it, too. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the writers of Rohan and uh, even uh, Atreyu and his mount and, and, yes. and Never Ending Story. Ooh, nice, nice call out to Never Ending Story. I love that movie. Yeah. It holds up. <laughs> I, a little I, bit. I actually rewatched it last year, and more of it held up than I expected. Yeah, I think there was a point where I was like, "Nah, this is no good." You know, maybe in my mid twenties, mm-hmm. and then like now, I'm like, you know what? No, it's 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 it pulls at the right heartstrings in the right way. Yeah, the, uh, but yeah, the, the but like that, got us. that uh, a bond that he has with his with his horse. Yes. Uh, oh, I'm forgetting the name of it, but then also even uh, uh, Falcor and and the mm-hmm. riding a dragon is is part of mounted combat too. Yeah, Gandalf and Shadowfax. Yes, uh, and. Uh, yeah, it, it, it is such a, a classic image of not only the knight in shining armor uh, astride a horse, but, you know, again, Gandalf a wizard on top on a horse. Uh, many heroes in myth and in fantasy literature are often associated with a mount of some kind. Yeah. Uh, and it's something, again, because of the fine steed spell or the fine greater steed spell that appears in Xanathar's, Xanathar's Guide to Everything – that we have at least one class that is highly motivated to have a mount. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cavaliers, uh, that subclass that also appears in Xanathar's Guide to Everything, also has uh, this desire often to include a mount in some way. Right. So uh, it's a shame to let it fall by the wayside. Uh, and, and yeah, how do we, how do we integrate it more uh, into your game? So part of that is DMs uh, just designing more outdoor encounter opportunities and also to remember that uh, in all of those points and adventures where people are traveling long distances from one place to the next, that unless they're traveling uh, by river or by sea or by air, uh, often they're going to want to get on uh, a horse or some other kind of mount uh, to make that journey. Mm-hmm. And whether because it's a random encounter on the journey or because the villains are hunting the adventurers down, there are actually many opportunities to have encounters 
that will involve the mounts. Uh, now, not all mounts are going to be combat ready. Uh, you can imagine a typical riding horse or a donkey, you know, freaking out uh, when battle breaks out. Uh, and you could have situations where the DM decides that the mounts are more of a liability than, mm -hmm. uh, than an aid. Uh, also, on the top of many players' minds is if they're playing a character who uh, cares about the welfare of the animals, they're often going to want to get the animals out of there as quickly as possible <laughs> so that they're not gobbled up uh, by whatever monster has suddenly you know, reared its ugly head. Uh, but however a DM decides to integrate mounts uh, into the game, yeah. and it's something I did uh, quite a bit of, not in my current campaign, which is a very urban horror game, but in my previous campaign, which was very Celtic-themed with a lot of battles mm. out in open countryside. There are actually very few battles in my previous campaign that took place indoors. Uh, often there were opportunities for mounts. And to be clear here, when we're talking about mounts, we're not just talking about horses, although horses are the most iconic. Uh, a mount can be any creature that is suitable for you to ride around on. So mm. in my previous campaign, that included, you know, at one point, wyverns that... Their foes were writing, you know, it can in certain stories, like in Dragonlance uh, tales, can include being astride dragons themselves. Yeah. Uh, there are pegasi in the game, uh, all sorts of creatures uh, that you can uh, use as mounts. Um, so the base requirement for a creature to be your mount is that it be at least one size category larger than you. So most humanoids in the game are medium, some are small. And so it means, okay, they need, to, they need to be at least one size category bigger than you. Mm -hmm. So it's normally going to mean large. Uh, it, they also have to be willing. A monster that, or a monster or, or animal or what have you is not going to be your mount unless it's been trained to be your mount or it wants to be your mount. Uh, so again, that willingness is important. And then there's a part that's really up to the DM. And that is, does the creature have an anatomy that lends itself to being a mount, to bearing the weight of another creature without that, that weight bearing inhibiting the creature's movement too much. Right. Now, one way a DM can uh, ascertain this is take a look at the creature's strength and using the rules on strength, see what the creature's carrying capacity is. Uh, Keeping in mind that there are some creatures where we talk about, oh, they, they can, uh, they're unusual and they can carry more than, more than normal. Uh, but I wouldn't get too hung up on that as a DM. I would say really just sort of go with your narrative gut. If something is horse-like, you know, that strong and four-legged, yeah. uh, it's, it's likely it can, it can bear the weight of a creature that is, you know, one or more, one or more sizes smaller than it. Mm -hmm. um, this rule is here partly because, and this has been true for many editions of D&D, anytime there are mounted rules and, and, you know, if they ever refer to someone being bigger, of course, someone's going to ask, can the halfling ride the paladin around? <laughs> because, <laughs> because the paladin, uh, let's say we're talking about a half-orc paladin uh, who's medium size, size yeah. and, the, and the halfling uh, is, uh, is small. It's like, well, if the half-orc is willing and he's <laughs> one size larger, uh, can't he be a mountain? So that's why we say, DM, does this person have a suitable anatomy? Sure, that half-orc is probably really strong. 
But most of us, if we had someone bearing down on our shoulders all the time, we can do it for a little while. I mean, many of us have, you know, had kids up on our shoulders yeah. at, at different times. But imagine doing that for hours on end. Oh, you I've know. done it for hours on end <laughs> and regretted it for, for weeks to come. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. It's not, we're not made for that. Yeah. So normally when we think of a, of a creature with an appropriate anatomy, we're thinking of something that's a quadruped, or it could be also something uh, that maybe is like giant and worm-like. You know, mm. if like you could actually get one to be willing, uh, dune style, yeah, you could imagine, say, yeah, riding around, yeah, yeah, riding around on a big purple worm, which yeah. would be pretty fantastic. What do you? <laughs> <laughs> so, if you if you've met that requirement, that the creature has an appropriate anatomy, it's big enough, and it's willing, hop on. Uh, then the question is, well, how do you hop on? Yeah. So our game has open-ended movement rules. So, you know, getting up next to your mount, you move up next to it how the same way you move up next to anything in D&D. Now, getting up onto the mount does have a special rule, and these rules I'm referring to are in the combat chapter of the player's handbook, and there's a section at the very end of the combat rules called Mounted Combat. I actually have uh, the book open to that page. Perfect. Um, and one of the special rules there is once you're, once you're adjacent to this mount, to get up on it, you need to spend an amount of movement equal to half your speed. This is actually just the like the rule for standing up from when you're prone. Okay. The reason why this is a variable amount, so, you know, it's essentially an amount of movement that changes depending on uh, what your speed is. The point is we want a, you to burn half your potential movement, whatever your speed is, uh, because you're not just moving. This is also representing, you know, you're kind of climbing on, you're getting into place, you're situating yourself, you're getting the reins if there are reins, or mm -hmm. you're grabbing onto the creature's mane or to its horns or whatever it is you're grabbing onto. This represents not just getting there, it's getting situated, you're ready to go. Right. Uh, a DM, I could imagine, might allow somebody to mount faster, uh, and then, uh, you know, if a person's really in a panic, the DM might say, okay, you can mount faster than that, and then maybe imp impose disadvantage on uh, the next check the person makes, or their next attack roll, or the next saving throw they make. So, Or you could be, I mean, there's, I'm just throwing this out there, but like I'm thinking of uh, uh, a few fantasy films I've seen where there's a very acrobatic mounting of a horse, or yes. it's like flipping around uh -huh. and doing on that, and if you roll a high uh, DC acrobatics check, you might allow something like that. And, and in fact, as DM, I have allowed that very thing. I've, uh, I am, as I've mentioned before in Sage Advice, I am very generous and encourage other DMs to be very generous when players are creative and use their character's capabilities in fun, cinematic ways. And so mm. if I have a character who, yeah, they're going to try to do some, you know, Crazy Legolas flip, style thing. Yeah, yeah, up onto their horse, and I'll say, "Yeah, go ahead, give me, give me that acrobatics check." And if they nail it, bam, they're on the horse, and I probably won't charge them extra movement at all for that. Yeah. Uh, but there's always the risk: if they fail that check, then I'm probably going to have some some pratfall happen. Where like they they not only didn't make it on the mount, but they, they lose might their action, or or they land in you know the water trough on the <laughs> other side. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of fun things that can happen because yeah. uh, really any time you hand you as a DM decide to hand over some of the decision making to the D20, 
part of that decision making as DM is get ready for crazy uh, <laughs> because <laughs> crazy good and yeah, crazy bad exactly because the D twenty as as I've talked about before is so swinging uh, that. And part of the fun of D&D is even the DM can be surprised by the outcome. And yeah. then you have the fun of coming up with, well, what happened? Like, you just, you you vaulted right over that griffin you were trying to, to land on, and you landed in the lake, you know, on the other side. Okay, and now you get to use the swimming rolls. <laughs> yeah. uh, I would even make it, <laughs> your, your trusted mouth sidestepped a little bit to the left uh, yes. at the last second <laughs> uh, as a getting back for, you know, giving a moly carrot the, yes. the night before or something yeah, like that. With a little scowl at yeah, you. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So once, once you're on your mount, uh, you then have a choice. And uh, this choice point uh, throws people a, b- a little bit sometimes, and that is, you decide: Am I going to control this mount, or am I going to let it act independently? Mm. And we tell you in the rules that intelligent creatures, which is, and and this is admittedly vague in the rule, they will act independently. And really here when we say intelligent creatures, we mean creatures that are uh, their own their own person basically. Yeah, like, sentient. Yeah, like a dragon, like think of is does this thing have a name? Can it talk? Uh that thing is going to act independently. Yeah. Uh it it's like it's allowing you on its back. <laughs> you you are welcome to communicate your desires to it. But it's entirely up to that creature whether it's going to follow your instructions. Right. But it's not like a trained horse that is bred and uh, uh, manicured only to do what you command it. Right. Uh, now, if you, if you control the mount, and it has to be kind of a, a, a less intelligent thing uh, that you do this with. Although I will say this. If the intelligent creature decides, mm. eh, you take it from here. The DM and you could certainly agree that the intelligent creature has decided to be controlled. Because right. really that, that would in, a, in effect be a better way of us writing this rule is just saying the intelligent creature, it gets to decide. Mm. Um, you don't get to because yeah. it's its own person. That makes sense. Uh, so once you've made that decision, that actually has a, a strong mechanical outcome. If the creature is behaving independently, like you're basically, all right, all right, Mr. Ed, you take it from here. Uh, that means your mount decides what to do. And this can be good or bad uh, because the mount might decide to do things that are not advantageous. Right. Uh, and you especially probably do not want to allow a kind of dumb, just regular horse take the reins, as it were. Mm. Because if it's a big battle, it might just decide, I'm out of here. Uh, so... Uh, it can be risky to let the creature uh, do its own thing. But there's also an advantage. When it can do its own thing, it gets to take its full turns as normal. Uh, that means it can move around on its turn. It can attack on its turn. It can have all the action options it would normally have. Does it roll its own initiative? Yes. Yep. Yeah. It's, oh. it's initiative is its own. Uh, that independent creature... It just acts like any other creature on the battlefield. It's just you're on its back. Got it. Uh, that's really, that's the main difference. And then, of course, again, there are these other rules in the combat chapter about getting on and off it. There are also some rules I'll, I won't go into here about 
uh, you know, the potential for getting knocked off your mount, and those rules apply whether you're controlling the mount or it's acting independently. Uh, the main thing is, you know, once you make this decision, that affects how much of a turn uh, your mount has. If it's independent, it acts like anybody, any other creature in the fight, uh, and it's really up to the player and the DM who is controlling uh, that mount at the table. Because many DMs will say, even though this creature is independent and it's, it's making its own choices on the battlefield, you player go ahead and control it. And mm-hmm. I recommend that actually to most DMs. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah Why I'm is like, that? Um, partly because DMs often have plenty of other things to control. Mm-hmm. And also because players like to have that kind of that sense of companionship and ownership of their mount. And so even if uh, the mount is uh, an intelligent mount, uh, I would like to empower players say, hey, you get to control it. Unless, again, it's an important NPC, like you're riding on the back of a really intelligent dragon who might have knowledge uh, that the players aren't privy to. Uh, or, you know, the DM has maybe something in the dragon stat block that the DM doesn't want to reveal. There are situations where the DM should retain control of that creature. Right. Uh, otherwise, I'd say uh, let the players do it. The DM already has plenty of things to keep track of at the table. And yeah. most players would enjoy, I think, controlling their mount, even if it's a, a – I mean, making decisions for the mount, even if it's acting independently. Yeah. but And they like that duality. They like having like, oh, this is a symbiotic thing, so I'm going to make choices that the mount is doing, even though it's the mount making it – it's exactly they're a team it because really it's good to think of really any kind of animal companion uh or monstrous companion in your group just think of it as another npc mm-hmm. and sometimes dms also will allow uh players to control uh humanoid uh, npcs who join the party you know you might have uh, a hench person who's with you, and the DM will say, "Okay, you you get to go ahead and control, you know, Cynthia, the the town guard who who marched off into the dungeon with yeah. you." Um, now, if you decide you're controlling the mount, different rules here, because suddenly the creature's initiative change, changes to your initiative. You're now acting as a unit. Mm-hmm. It still has a turn but its turn basically overlaps with yours. It gets its move. And so part of the advantage of this is basically it's moving on your turn. So it's then far easier for your character to coordinate with the mount. Right. Uh, its movement is taking place on your turn. And its action options are limited. Uh, there's kind of a good mnemonic here. We play the game called D&D. This controlled mount has the... D and D and D option, which is its only actions are dash, disengage, and dodge. Okay. Uh, and so that means it's not attacking or anything like that. It is fully dedicated at this point uh, to being a mount, to moving you around. Right. Uh, not in the like, oh, it can attack and claw and blah, blah, or even as a horse, you know, prance and do that. It is. It is a vehicle. Exactly. It is, it is focused entirely on this point, at this point, at moving you around and doing so safely. Uh, because, you know, the fact that it can disengage uh, means it can move without triggering opportunity attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and the beauty of it acting on your turn to make it easy, you know, its turn overlapping with yours is that then 
also your movement is still free to use on your own turn and all your actions are still available. So the mount almost becomes a movement and action extension for the rider. Mm. Uh, so that's a really powerful advantage. So even and though the mount is giving up things like attacking and whatnot, you're gaining on your turn all this potential extra movement uh, and also basically a free, for the mount at least, disengage, dodge, or dash, which in dash means even more movement. Yeah. And that's, I mean, the main reason why mounts are used in combat anyway, as you mentioned, the cavalry charge and things like that. Yes. It's literally just to get to the point faster and to smash and take advantage of, uh, uh, you know, a large-scale battle like, oh, a flank and motion and things like that. Right. Um, and then in this case, it's more about like, oh, I can make an attack and then travel, you know, double, double movement speed away from the range of most even range weapons and then come back and make that same attack the next round. Yeah. And yeah. that's the advantage there. Yeah, and so it's actually, and it's a, it can potentially be a huge advantage. Yeah. Um, so many people, partly because it's easiest whenever any of us are playing D&D, we're like, yeah, but attacks, attacks. And so people are like, all right, but what, how about we'll make the mount independent? So let's, assu- let's assume you do that. And it's not a creature that's just going to bolt, you know, like it's many horses. If you say, all right, again, Mr. Ed, you get to decide. Do whatever you want. It's out of there. Uh, and I don't want to be in this fight at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but assuming uh, your mount is allowed to act independently uh, and decides to stay in the fight and then therefore gains the use of its own attacks, the disadvantage you now have as a rider is you're going to have to wait till the mount's turn for it to move. Mm. So there's then is the that disjointedness with mount and rider where, again, still advantageous because you're still going to get that extra movement. But it it's, can be confusing in it, its execution, really. Right, because it, it's, it's broken up over multiple turns. But yeah. that's the trade-off. Uh, if, you, if, you, it's more, if it's more important to you that the mount gets, gets its attacks off rather than having all that extra movement occurring on your turn mm-hmm. in that tight coordination, then go for it. Make the mount independent. Uh, cool. But again, if it's all about let's dash around and for it to happen exactly when you want it to happen, control that mount. Um, I also, as DM, would allow you to make this decision at various points in the battle. It's not like once you decide to control the mount, mm. it's controlled forever. Um, in that case, would you roll initiative multiple times, or would you just have one that the the mount can drop in and out of? So, so when you decide to control a mount, its initiative changes to yours. And so, once you've made that decision, I would leave its initiative there. I wouldn't keep changing its initiative. Oh. So, even if it then became independent, like imagine you're knocked unconscious. Well, at that point, your mount you're not controlling it anymore. Your mount becomes independent at that point, uh, but I would still leave its initiative at that same point, uh, partly because uh, we designed the combat system so that you almost never have to change the initiative of anything. In fact, the mounted combat rules are one of the rare places where we have you change something's initiative. Yeah. Well, would, would that be a way to game the system a bit if you started off uh – Say, you know, independent, uh, and then you wanted to get the, your initiatives matched up so you could do the the kind of maneuvers that you can do easier when you're similar, and then like, okay, now they're independent again. 
You, that would definitely be one way to try to break the intent of the rule. And then at that point, I'd leave it to the DM. Because it already would be an element of DM grace yeah. to allow a person to switch from controlled to independent. Because uh, right. the rules uh, don't have that grace built in. But that's in. something that you were like, oh, I do this sometimes. Yeah, because right. again, I, as a DM, I tend toward generosity. But I also, part of me of the social contract in D&D is that basically when the DM is giving you a gift graciously, <laughs> accept it graciously. Yeah. Uh, because actually when I, when my generosity starts to run out and then I start being an impish DM <laughs> and players start vaulting into, you know, mud pits and falling in lakes <laughs> or, or trip into the toilet is when, <laughs> is when they start to uh, abuse my generosity. Right. You don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well done, sir. <laughs> um, so there are a few other neat wrinkles with mounted combat. Uh, when you are on your mount and the mount uh, triggers an opportunity attack, uh, your foes have the option of attacking the mount or you. Mm. Uh, now, this introduces an interesting wrinkle that is specific to playing with miniatures. Everything I've said so far works with or without miniatures. Okay. As soon as you introduce the use of a grid and you have actually, you know, on the grid, here's my horse miniature and here's, here's the miniature of my barbarian and now my miniature goes on the horse, it introduces a question that theater of the mind doesn't have. And that is, where on the horse is the barbarian? Mm. Because you're, you're now playing in a context where, you know, the exact five-foot square where everything is suddenly matters. Uh, and so there I would say just follow the normal movement rules. Uh, you know, when, you're, when your figure moves on to the other figure, just decide which of the spaces on the mount your miniature moved on to. Uh, just, and, and so it's that easy. You, oh, know. you said because it's a large miniature, it takes up four squares? Yes. Yep. And so you just pick one of those? Mm -hmm. And just say that's, that's where you are. But wouldn't you say you're kind of in the center? If you the, were the, the DM can make that, can make that decision. Uh, mm. it, and there's really no, there's no sort of wrong answer here for the DM to say, okay, you're... You know, you're in this square or that square or you're right in the middle of the square. It's just our rules don't really account Cover well that, for yeah. things that are um, partially in square. Although we do have a little bit of guidance in this realm in our area of effect rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Where there we talk about if, if, and this is specifically in the area of effect rules to be clear, about circular area of effects. We do say in those rules if a circular area of effect... Uh, covers at least half a square, the area of effect affects that square. So one way DMs could decide when it comes to positioning people or creatures on the grid, if they're not actually sort of snapped to the grid and they're, right. and they're overlapping several squares, if the miniature uh, is filling at least half the square, you can say, okay, the miniature is technically in that square. Um, and so you can kind of use that as a guiding yeah, thing for, yeah. for this too. And I, and I think in general, that's a good rule of thumb is, you know, if, this is as opposed to if, you know, just a tiny bit of the miniature is, is going over the line into, into another square, 
uh, I would generally say in, in the times when I do use miniatures that, nah, you're not really there. Yeah. Um, but again, that's, that's a determination I make, you know, scene by scene as a DM, uh, depending on how things were described uh, and whatnot. Uh, although, honestly, I think, uh, and, and again, it's fine if people decide to use miniatures, but you often, if you're doing high-speed cavalry charges, roaming battles in open country, I would say in most cases, don't use miniatures. Because that'll uh, just confuse more than illustrate. Well, plus, it, you'll, you'll quickly find out, as I have many times since I, I have actually... I'm getting to the point where I've run almost more combats in outdoor circumstances than indoor circumstances in my my multiple decades long career as a DM. Uh, Often your table's not big enough uh, because if you have a really exciting battle on the run with horses and dragons and wyverns and pegasi and griffins and other mounts or, you know, carriages that are barreling, you know, know, drawn by four horses at top speed. Yeah. Slowing that down to moving things square by square, A, can can sometimes suck some of the excitement out of it. But then again, also, often your table is just not big enough uh, for the distances that are going to be covered. There's a reason why war gamers use, you know, 12-foot tables in order to do what they do. <laughs> right. Right? And right. they take up the most space in the game store because of that reason. It's yeah. just, you know, right? It needs that, that scale in yeah. order to make it feel epic. Yeah. Right? And so if you can't deliver that on a, you know, a small you know, card table or something like that. It's, it's just, yeah, you're right. It's not worth it. Yeah. And also I agree with you. I think the epic nature of it, or the cinematic nature is kind of, I mean, we, we started this off talking about how mountain combat has this, this kind of movie like or, 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 or cinematic character. And if you're not getting that across with the, the miniatures, it's better just to keep it into that, that arena of, of how you describe it. Yeah. Now, if people decide they do want to kind of zoom in, uh, to, to sort of almost like, again, c- continuing on with the cinematic metaphor. You know, they want to go in for a close-up. Yeah. Uh, you know, knock yourselves out. It's fine to use miniatures and consider using this rule of thumb about positioning miniatures. Uh, and you, you can make it simple on yourself and just snap to the grid. Uh, and I know, I know some people... It will, it will feel aesthetically odd that their miniature is like only on the front of the, you know, only in one corner of the horse, basically. But it helps. But, you know, it's a game. Yeah. And and there are many things. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What? I know. I hate to break that. Down. <laughs> <laughs> this is a game. It's life. <laughs> <laughs> and we and we will often make choices that uh, are, you know, walking that tightrope uh, between uh, smooth, fun gameplay and... Uh, believable world building. Right. And, and I think it's important to try to always sort of stay somewhere in the middle uh, because people want that sense of immersion, but we also want a game that's going to keep moving, keep keep the story exciting, mm-hmm. uh, always be in service to the narrative yeah. uh, and to the thrill of, of whatever it is that's going on. You mentioned uh, uh, a couple other wrinkles with Mounted Combat other than the uh, opportunity attacks? Uh, the... Well, and then again, how it relates to especially miniatures use, because when you're using miniatures, then you'll see, especially with opportunity attacks and really any uh, attack, range becomes a very big issue Mm -hmm. and reach, especially for a melee attack, because where you are then on the mount could then affect uh, how well you can be targeted by someone who's not on the mount. Yeah. Uh, So... 
again, it requires some, as soon as you introduce miniatures, it, it re- definitely is going to require a bit more adjudication on the DM's part. Um, there are also some other things in the game that can enhance mounted combat. There are, you know, the subclasses I mentioned, um, uh, well, and, well, the subclass, the Cavalier, and then Paladins, uh, who have the Fine Steed spell. There's also uh, the mount- Mounted Combatant feat uh, that will make you more effective as a rider, and some magic items as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are also, other than Fine Steed, other spells that can also introduce mounts to the game. The Phantom Steed spell is, is an example of one of those. Uh, now, one of the spells, actually the spell, uh, that often generates the most questions related to the mounted combat rules is the fine steed spell. Yeah. Because people have often asked me, uh, is the fine steed, I mean, is the fine steed, is the found steed. (laughs) The steed uh, that you find. (laughs) Is it intelligent or not? And because they're asking this question because of the rule, uh, you know, where you decide is, are you going to control the mount or is it going to act independently? And the the spell says that you and you and the steed fight as a cohesive unit, uh, and you know you can communicate with it, and it serves you. Mm-hmm. And really, what that means is it's it's up to you, uh, because whether it's intelligent or not. Well, no, it's up to you whether to control it or to let it act independently. Oh, I see. Right. Uh, it because I think. I think sometimes when I've been asked this question and it sort of it, I early on in the editions lifespan a few years ago, these questions came up and I think I sometimes misunderstood the motivation for the question Mm. uh, because I, I'm thinking people were asking this because they were wondering, do I have a choice? Uh, You know, is it intelligent enough that it will always act independently? And the spell again says, so this is an unusually intelligent animal because part of the effect of the spell also is that its intelligence gets increased. Yeah. But the spell also tells you, you fight as a cohesive unit and it serves you, uh, which, you know, I want to make it clear to everyone listening. What that means is it's your choice. You decide when you, when you hop on, are you controlling it this time or is it an independent uh, it's not a, a the spell doesn't determine that for you. Right, exactly. Okay. You have you have liberty uh, a, as the player to decide each time you mount it. All right, is it this time going to act on its own or am I controlling it? Keeping in mind that one of the huge advantages of that mount is you know it's not going to screw you over because part of part of the, it is loyal. It is loyal, yeah. and the two of you are cohesive and can communicate with each other, uh, etc. So, it, which I think is what we all want from our mounts. Yes, really. yeah, I, I want my horse buddy. <laughs> he fends with us. Although, really, I want my unicorn mount. Yes, and it should be intelligent. Yes, uh, mostly just so you can have conversations with it when you're, you know, on your own. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Recline, about, reclining in a beautiful forest glade. <laughs> what about uh, 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 pole arms and uh, uh, spears and that kind of, uh, like a joust? Like how would you adjudicate a joust uh, uh, in, in, using mounted combat rules? So uh, there, there are no specific rules for, for things like a joust. Uh, there are a variety of ways you could adjudicate a contest like that. Uh, one of the easiest ways, and easy because you can just use the rules you already have, is have the two writers write at each other 
and just have each of them make attack rolls uh, and then decide, well, if they both hit, you know, whoever got the higher roll scored the mightier hit. Uh-huh. And if anyone has been to a Ren Fair, uh, you'll uh, you often hear the announcers saying, you know, it's a mighty strike or, you know, <laughs> so it's so really you're just rolling to see who had the mightier of the strikes. Or if one of them missed and one hit, well, then obviously uh, the one who hit uh, got the blow in. And then the DM could could also determine thresholds where uh, either you need to get a certain attack roll to dismount the person, or it might be uh, that might be determined by a separate saving throw where you first see if you can hit the person, and then they need to make a strength saving throw to hang on and and stay on on their horse. Right, because it's it's yeah, it encompasses both those facets of how good you are, and then if you get hit, how do you stay on? Yeah. yeah. Now if if a DM doesn't want to use the combat rules at all, you could also just make a series of uh, ability check contests. Uh, for instance, you could do a sequence of strength athletics uh, contests between uh, the two writers. Although in this case, I think it's a bit better to to make attack rolls because you are actually riding forward with something that is a weapon in our game. Yeah, uh, But... Because there are no rule, there's really no right or wrong way of doing this. I mean, it really should be, you know, what is the what is the feel the DM's going for? Right, and you would want. I mean, if someone had taken a, a, a feat or or subclasses that were designed around mounted combat, you would want those to be taken into effect. Yes. Yep. And and another reason why I would lean toward in a joust using attack rolls is I would expect. A fighter, for instance, to be better at jousting than, say, a wizard. Mm. Uh, and uh, if you lean into the combat rules, that is more likely to be the case. That makes sense. Um, whereas as soon as you open it up to just general ability checks, well, then, you know, the... Anybody could be good at, yeah. The, the lore bard is going to hop right on and woo, yeah. I won. Although that could be a really fun scene. Yeah, uh, right. And, and now I'm thinking of, was Gandalf good at jousting? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> He does have a sword, and he, don't, he uses it pretty well. Maybe, maybe if we ever get the you know the secret tales of what Gandalf the Grey <laughs> was doing, you know, all the centuries while he was wandering around, maybe for a while, just right. he was bored and decided I'm going to participate in jousts. And then, the, then he moved on to pipeweed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the blue wizards. Who knows what they're up to? Yep. Then, then he was after the found the pipeweed. He was just too chill to to joust anymore. <laughs> I've, Oh man, I just rewatched uh, a Fellowship of the Ring, and there's definitely uh, some shade being thrown by Saruman to that effect. Yes, yes, yeah, yep. When he first when he first yeah. goes to Orthanc, Saruman is like, "Whoo, buddy, yeah, the weed is clouding <laughs> you." And he's like, what? "I thought that was Radagast." <laughs> <laughs> I'm cool. I'm fine. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, if people have uh, questions about uh, wizards uh, uh, jousting uh, or any other mounted combat uh, things, how can they get in touch with you, Jeremy? Uh, the best place to reach me is on Twitter, where I am Jeremy. Me E. Crawford. Awesome. And uh, you can follow me at Greg Tito, although I, I know less about mounted combat than Jeremy does. Uh, and uh, yeah, of course, uh, we'll have to have you back and ask you more questions about uh, all these facets of fun rules in Sage Advice. So, I'm always delighted to do it. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank 
that was just a really good uh, segment from Jeremy. I'm so excited about uh, learning uh, the design philosophy behind uh, all those combat rules because, you know, I don't usually get to use a horse when I'm playing or a mount in any, any kind of way. You really try to get that elephant uh, uh, going and being used. Uh, but it, it ends up adding this wrinkle, and I think he really solidified it into something that makes it uh, way easier to, yep. to, to figure out how to use at the table. Good job. It's good stuff. Yeah. All right. Um, we are going to have our uh, my interview yeah. with Joe Manganello. I guess I should it's coming up now. next. You know, I didn't want to have to ask you to go. No, you don't have to. The police will. Ask I me think to go. there's a restraining order in <laughs> place against uh, Arkin the Cruel because uh, he stole the hand of Vecna uh, at the last session of Critical Role's last season. Oh. So we're going to get to the heart of that in this interview. Well, I hope hope you have a really good time. <laughs> I, I, past me. Let's see. Did you have a good time, Greg? No. Okay, well, we'll see. Past you, man. He's such a jerk that past me. And he's, like, hard living. Future me is like, oh, yeah, it was a really good time. I really enjoyed it. Oh, that Greg, he's so sweet and not jaded. He doesn't know. Past Greg is a cynic. He doesn't know the hard times that are coming. It all is going to end in tears. Uh, but not this interview. It did not end in tears. It Good. Ended in laughter. Well, you didn't do your job. Well is, well, I know, right? Your I did job. not uh, Barbara Wallowa uh, this interview at all. Too bad. Uh, but here it is. Here's my interview with Joe. All right. Well, I am here with Joe Manganello uh, to talk about all things Dungeons and Dragons, especially Yeehaw! what's been happening with Archon. And uh, I said it wrong again. Didn't I? <laughs> Archon. No, you, were, you well, you 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 were you were going there, and then you you doubted yourself. I did. I had a little moment of doubt. Yeah, Archon. Archon. Yeah. With a question mark? Archon, yeah. <laughs> Exclamation. Exclamation point yes. at all times. Yeah. Uh, as well as, you know, uh, working with Forrest Gray and all the fun stuff over the last year uh, for Dungeons & Dragons. We had a, it was really awesome having you at Stream of Annihilation so uh, much last June. Such a blast. Oh, my God. It, I told somebody that it, it felt like, like early stage MTV. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. There was just a bunch of people there in the studio who just loved this goddamn thing and were all these creatives and, and, and people who were just there for love of the game all weekend long and all of us coming from around the globe to um, to meet each other and get to play and hang out and share stories and it was such a blast. I love that. Early, early, uh, you know, John Norris and yeah. uh, all those yeah. old VJs. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, because they like filmed it like just in the back of a lot in, hey, in MTV and yeah. I was like, yeah, that's kind of what we were doing. Just totally. Get a soundstage and a table and yeah. we're good to go. We can make it go. Totally. Uh, so next year is going to be completely different. At the uh, Beach House in Malibu. <laughs> exactly. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah. We'll get Chris Hardwick to do it again. It <laughs> kind of sounds like it might fit. Very circular. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Uh, so yeah, so that was uh, uh, you know a great introduction into all of the streaming and stuff. And you had you had played with uh, Matt Mercer, I think, before then already, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what was it like bringing uh, you know being a part of the end of that first arc of, of Critical Role? Oh boy. Well, you know they'd been playing for what four or five years, yeah. and uh, I'd watched a lot, a significant amount of the episodes, and, and certainly all of the final run leading up to the final battle with Vecna, and. You know, I, I had met Matt, you know, I met Matt early on in this thing. I think I met him after the first Force Grave finale at yeah. the Egyptian Theater. That sounds like right. live finale. That sounds right, yeah. So I met Matt, and then Matt would come over to my house at DM, and uh, I got to know Matt a little bit, and Matt said, hey, man, you should come on Critical Role at some point. And I said, great, well, you know, whenever, man, I'm ready. And, uh, and so months were going by, and I'm like, 
dude, you know, I don't want to bug this guy, but like, I really want to make sure that I wind up. And I, I was getting ready to go off and film a movie, and I was like, damn, this thing's coming to an end. If I'm shooting that movie and I'm like, I really want to do this, you know? And, um, and so I bugged Matt. And Matt was like, no, 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 no. He's like, you're going to come into the perfect time. Don't worry. I got you. Um, we'll get you as soon as you come home from your, from your film. And I'm like, okay. So we start scheduling. Yeah. And I realize I'm probably coming in at the final penultimate battle. Right. And as I'm watching the episodes, I really thought it was going to be Orcus. I thought, I thought you know, Matt had kind of dropped some breadcrumbs that led viewers to, to think that Orcus was going to be the final boss battle. But when it became clear that it was Vecna, and Vecna was plane-shifting like, like cities yeah. and, and armies, it, it, you know, all of a sudden it took on this completely different... It was this different thing for me. It was like a different scale. Like, I mean, they were, they were adventurers going through things, but, like, all of a sudden it became worlds and, and, and armies and powers and forces. Yeah, and, and, and if it was Orcus or it was some other different boss, then um, I think it would have meant something different to Archon. Right. Because, you know, I'm now playing Archon at level 17, and Archon is a paladin, which means he's this holy warrior of a god. Yeah, or goddess, and <laughs> in this case, case. Yeah. <laughs> and and who's his goddess? Tiamat. So, what does every Tiamat worshiper want? They they want to be the one that finds a way to get her out of the first plane of hell and back to the primaterial plane. Yeah, that's their goal. Bring her it's back. It's always been the goal. Yeah. So, in playing a high level paladin cleric, um, it's not really about you. At that mm. level, it's about endgame. You're not adventuring into dungeons, um, killing skeletons to try to find a plus one sword. Yeah, it's it's about you know it's about the endgame. It's about your character's arc and coming to the end of this arc, and what that meant in terms of critical role was. I realized, shit, they're they're fighting a boss that has the ability to 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 plane shift huge objects, mm-hmm. which means that's exactly what a Tiamat worshiper would want mm. to use to get Tiamat out. Oh. So I started plotting the way that someone would plot a bank robbery or a heist. <laughs> and I started emailing back and forth with Matt, and we were getting together. And when we got together to uh, level to level Archon up and figure out what sort of, you know, his vestige, the, the wreath of the prism that allows him to control monsters or beasts had grown. Right, and so we were we were leveling all of that up, and I said, Matt, <clears throat> I said, so, I said, so Vecna can plane shift huge objects, and you said, yeah, and I said, wouldn't that be interesting to a Tiamat worshiper? And he said, oh, I said, so I would have a primary responsibility, which was to destroy Vecna and make sure Vecna didn't take over. Right, but then I have the secondary mo, which is to figure out how he's doing that and bring that back to the queen. Mm. And Matt went, yes, you would. And I said, okay. And so I mapped this whole, like I, I kind of mapped out this heist and how it would go and, 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 and Matt agreed. But I didn't tell Matt how I was going to do it mm. because then I needed to go away and think, well, if it's the hand, how am I going to get the hand away? Because there was a moment where 
uh, Vecna was down to like 10 hit points. And if we would have destroyed the physical body, the soul would have gone into someone else and sprouted up yeah. in another place. Yeah. So um, things had to go a certain way. Um, but when Vax, Liam O'Brien's character, like had nothing else to do but grapple Vecna, it gave me then – I came up like a couple of turns after him. Mm. And I said, all right, uh, uh, I'm going to grapple the arm with the hand. And everyone was like, yeah, yeah, great idea. So maybe he can't use the hand. You know, I was like, yeah. And I, so I had to like sell it to, that I was getting now close to the hand and then hope that they were going to uh, destroy Vecna with the, those, those spears. Right. Um, and just right the moment, right before, yeah. And so when, you know, Vecna was, was destroyed, um, uh, Matt then turned and said, okay, you have the, you have the hand. He said, you know, the, everything disappears, but, but you're holding on to this hand. Mm-hmm. And I knew that the group had had trouble with the hand before, yeah. but I knew that they really didn't know me or know my character. And I was, I was kind of banking on, I was banking on there being dead on the ground mm. uh, and, and, and that they were, the dead was going to have to be attended to. But I was also hoping that or banking on them being um, tired after the battle. So... Um, Taking that into account, I had like several weeks before come up with this plot, this 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 idea that if I could sell to them that somehow I had been granted the power to destroy Vecna's hand by Tiamat, that maybe that's why I was sent there, that it would give me a moment, just enough of a moment to raise the to describe that I'm raising the axe and be able to bring it down and then. I was only going to have a few seconds to say something before they could get a reaction out. Right. And, um, I mean, it wound up working. It wound up being perfect. It worked. Yeah. But I had all of that in my head, which, which is funny because online afterwards, a lot of people accused me of, of making some sort of spur-of-the-moment power grab. Yeah. But you, know, you were playing that all along. It was a completely selfless act. It wasn't about Archon. Archon doesn't want that hand. That hand is so corrosive to, to the mind and, and the body of the wearer, and it's not anything that was remotely near what he would want personally. It's just if you're playing a high-level paladin or a high-level cleric, yeah. it's not about you anymore. It's about your god or your goddess. And in terms of Tiamat, he had to do this to get back. So then afterwards it was like, well, you know, Grog's going to kill you, and they're all going to find you, and, you know, and... But here's the thing, like, okay, and I'm going to have an army of ancient dragons behind me with a fire-headed dragon. You like, you like, okay, well you, you want to try? Yeah. And it was, I think people didn't understand why. They just thought I was going to be standing there in, like, a grass, grassy field with this hand right. chilling out. Well, what I liked about, I mean, it was such a dramatic moment uh, to watch live. Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't gotten to see too many Critical Role live. I'm a family. It's, you know, sure. a thing. But yeah. I was watching it on that Thursday night because I knew you were there and I knew it was the finale and it was yeah. super dramatic. Uh, and having that moment of you saying you put on the hand and walking off was possibly <laughs> one of the most powerful things I'd ever seen in a, in a D&D game at all. Yeah. Not even one that's you know, broadcast live because sure. you used the tropes of, uh, of play. I mean, like when, if a player takes his character sheet and leaves the table... You know, shit has gone down like that. <laughs> yeah. That's usually not good, you know. But like in this case, the it was pizza's like pizza's not even here, bro. <laughs> you're like, I'm out. You're I'm like, seriously, you're yeah. just gonna leave? That's what, that's yeah. what you're doing? But it was it was 
I don't know, using that kind of off-the-table dr- dramaticness to it mm-hmm. was awesome to me. Well, thanks. Well, well, you know, it was like a, it was really well planned out. And then furthermore, there was a whole exit strategy that I that I told Matt about. I yeah. said, Matt, I said, you know, I said, you know, as as a high-level paladin, <clears throat> would I have some sort of religious fanatic or some sort of some sort of like Renfield to my Dracula, if you will. <laughs> and I presented to him, I said, you know, I would have, I would want some sort of deal struck with like a, like a death domain cleric who would be like my minion, who would be, who would have the ability to plane shift me mm. waiting somewhere in Taldore. When you gave the signal. So I would teleport out because the other side of it was like, I think Matt, Matt was surprised in that moment because Matt didn't think I was going to cut my hand off. Right. I think Matt, Matt was like, well, yeah, you can, you, you know, then maybe if you figure out what this thing is, you know, then you can just, you can escape. And I think he thought I was going to try to ride one of the gloom stalkers out. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and, excuse me. <clears throat> and, or, but it was like, how am I going to get away? I'm going to allow them reaction time. They can shoot arrows 300 right. feet. Well, and then it, it would be just happen. a chase scene at the end, which it's I don't ridiculous. think anybody wanted uh, for, for that episode, right? So, but it And was, I don't even, I don't think I could get away. Yeah. I just think they had enough up their sleeves that. Right. I, I mean, they just I'd, defeated I'd be Vecna. Dead. It's I mean, me course, versus Vox Machina. Like, yeah. That's, they're uh, all depleted, at least of spells, but. <laughs> I don't want to bet that, that I can pull that One versus, you know, seven probably we have. Also, it's like in terms of a narrative, like, what's a better moment than chopping off your own hand and now being stuck yeah. chained to the hand of Vecna. Because it's such a sacrificial moment when Ugh. you chop off your own hand. It's just... And you're stuck with this thing. So so I said, Matt, uh, so after, you know, I said, okay, I had this death domain cleric and I, um, so what I did was I, I teleported to a spot, a meeting spot that we would have had. I would have downed, you know, healing potions and he then immediately plane shifts me to the first plane of hell. To mm. have my first face-to-face meeting with Tiamat with your in the well, and I have the hand, I have the power to get her out. Like I'm the one. Yes. And so, it would then become um, a struggle of trying to decipher um, from Vecna the ability to to get her out, to which which, which would take plane. a period of time, which would also then. Uh, I would put this voice of Vecna into Archon's mind, and it yeah. would start corrupting his mind, corrupting his body uh, to the point of madness, um, while Tiamat is also making demands of him. But also, he is now her general. He's now the one who is leading her army. So he's off, you know, sitting on top of this giant ancient dragon while the armies below are just raising cities and he's just monitoring from up above this, you know, battle and scheming. And so it's, but he's given up uh, any sense of humanity that he possibly yeah, has. You should commission that art piece of art right yeah. there. Yeah. Like that, like, yeah. yeah. Astride a dragon with Tiamat behind yeah. him, like coming into your, your, you know, prime material plane. But like, he now has this, this, this lonely, lonely existence up in a tower somewhere. Mm. You know, as the dragon armies have now flooded into the prime material plane, he's now in this tower and he's, He's lost everything, like any yeah. sort of, you know, form of love or, 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 or you know, humanity, any sort of compact, like it's, it's just gone. Do you think uh, he's a uh, monster? Tiamat rewards him? You know, do you think, you know, that's, that's, do you think Absolutely. He's, he's happy with what's, what's happened? Well, I think, I think he has anything he could possibly want materially. Yeah. And, and power, ambition, like it's all been fulfilled mm-hmm. and being fulfilled. But uh, his mind is corrupted. His body is starting to rot on on the left side. Yeah, 
And I think that he, I think he's in a place where he would get to a place where he would want to die. He would want to be free of it because it's just, it's oh. too much to handle. Would he want to be a lich? Like, would he want un- undead? He, he would never want that. Okay. And so, but he would also have to hide that from Tiamat. Mm. So he's in the spot where he can't let her know, but he's also being driven to the point of madness. And so there's an amount of like he has these ancient dragons who are now guarding him in this tower, protecting him, doing his bidding. But they're also there to make sure that he would never hurt himself Mm. or do something to himself to end his life. Oh, because she needs him. She needs him. To plane shift. So they're there to make sure that he can't check out. Oh, man. Which Have you played this one shot yet with Matt? Like, I feel like you guys need to do like a, a one-on-one, uh, uh, you know, he's playing Tiamat. And well, there, there might, I mean, you know, Matt and I have had, had some lengthy talks about where I think he would go mm-hmm. and where, and, and Matt, like we're, you know, agreeing in, in common ground, you know, where, where he could continue to exist in, in that world, in the Tal'Dorei world. In the, and all I can say is I, I think there, there are some fun things in the works that nice. for, for for people that are that are interested in where the character went from yeah from the the, well, the big Vecna battle. I feel like I have to ask this question, and it's probably leading into exactly what you're talking about, mm-hmm. and maybe giving away too much. But yeah. the speculation that I had immediately after that episode was uh, almost like like True Blood did, where mm-hmm. the 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 final episodes did really good at hinting at the next season. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Do you think that uh, you know Vox Machina or or the the new group of of, of players will meet up with uh, Ar- Archon? That's that's not up to me because uh, that's uh, that that that's a good question for Matt. Um, that's a good question for Matt. That's a great question for Matt. <laughs> I think we should all. I think we should call Matt right now. Yeah, call him up on the Skype. Um, Let's do it. Uh, no, yes, actually. But, but I will say all I can say uh, because you know I, I can't give anything away, and, and I also can't. I can't speak for Matt, and I never would want to. Um, uh, but but we've had a lot of talks about about what happens Please. and where, where at least where Archon goes, and just know that you know post. You know, post Critical Role season one, wrap up in episode one fifteen. Just know that um, I guess with this interview now, everyone knows that's what was in process. Right. It wasn't. I want this hand so I can do Finger of Death. Yeah, I just <laughs> wanted know? the treasure. I, I can like cast it, it a really like, high powered sleep spell. And yeah. Teleport. Like <laughs> it really wasn't about that. It was. It was more about um, the story. It was about the right. story. Like what, what your character would do in that moment. I mean, it was about a high-level paladin actually figuring out a way to um, insert himself into a group yeah. that was about to go off and fight for the, the, the salvation of the world against this god-like you know, entity yeah. and, and, and things falling into place so that he could escape with what he needed to free Tiamat from the well. Yeah. It's like, come on. So, and that is in process. Now, you know, this campaign takes place 20 years later, so I don't know. Maybe he's figured out a way. Maybe he, I don't know. We're not on that continent. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, a lot of I, question think marks. That, I think that was the real fun of it was that, you know, in, in The Hobbit, um, you know, the readers don't even realize that the oh, ring of power. That, that ring is going to be the thing that, 
the next yeah. series of books come. I don't know. think Tolkien even knew as he was writing The Hobbit. No. I think I've, I've mm-hmm. heard that in his, his journals. Like, he was like, oh, this is just a, a neat, uh, you know, magic item to put into his book. And yeah. then it grew from there. So, yeah. But I will say that, 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 you know, the hand of Vecna played a big part in the finale, which then was on people's minds. And, you know, um, you know uh, Wild Mount is still within that, that world. And right. it's 20 years later. So how I don't do you, know. just one more Arkin question, because how do you reconcile... Yeah. Working with Force Gray, uh, uh, does it feel like it is the same character that you're playing uh, whenever you take that character? Because I've noticed in other things, yeah. you always talk about like how I I played this character, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and I got this piece of magic item, and sure. I'm gonna bring it into this game. Like you, you have a continuity with all of your characters that you seem to play with. Yeah, definitely. And I think in in my mind, uh, Force Gray was uh, an earlier timeline. You know, it's it's our kind of level. What six and seven? Yeah. Uh, whereas Archon in the Critical Role finale was seventeen, right. and and now it would be twenty. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, uh, and so there was also um, I'm big on 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 organic storytelling, like when I game, not yeah. necessarily min maxing. I mean, look, there's an amount of it that what do I really want to play, yeah. and what do I think would be a cool thing to play, and what am I excited to 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 add to my character, yeah. but I want everything to be organic and there to be a story behind it. And you know, in for, during Force Gray, there was there was some sort of romantic, some some romance sparking up between Jamila, uh, Dev's character, and yeah. Archon. Yeah, and which really started blooming during the the uh, the, the finale, the live game, <laughs> right? Know, live in New York, game. right? Like Brooklyn, bathed in blood, craziness. Yeah, um, and, and so I, in my mind, thought. You know, after after fulfilling his commitment to Force Gray, uh, Archon would maybe leave with Jamila mm-hmm. and help her find her tribe. Yeah, and that somewhere along the way, um, they they would or they'd find this barbarian tribe. And I kind of thought, well, since he's a paladin and a healer, you've got the chieftain of the tribe, like dies. Yeah. Somehow, and this paladin Archon would would raise the chieftain from the dead. Mm. And these barbarians would worship he and Tiamat oh. for raising the chieftain. Or turn on you. Well, they brought him back. They brought him back from the dead. That's thank you. Sure. But some barbarians hate magic. They don't, they, don't, you know, they respect the, the spirits of their ancestors. If you, uh, 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 that might be a, you know, something that would Potential. insult their people. Potentially, yeah. potentially. Um, Maybe that turns you away from Jamila. See, I love all these, like, yeah, right? Like, oh, that's the schism between the two of you, and then you go down the arc, Archon arc of uh, uh, meeting up with with uh, uh, Vox Machina. True. Um, or, or, <laughs> or they would wind up, this this tribe would wind up worshipping Tiamat. Yeah, well, that's the way. So you have a barbarian tribe wearing skulls and dragon scales and this kind of draconic worshipping group of barbarians who and then Archon and Jamila would kind of would stay there because they yeah. would be exalted in this in this community by this tribe oh and and then somewhere and that would be where Archon would have picked up three levels of barbarian. Oh, all right. That and, makes sense. Uh, before, you know, this huge, you know, extinction event happening with Vecna, he would then be called to go off and you yeah. know so just somewhere in the mix 
that went on. Well, I like how this is almost like a comic book. Well, that's kind of what I want to. Yeah, where it's like you you can tell different stories and see different spotlights of things that are happening, and even through different interpretations of the characters and things like that. Archon the Cruel, Archon the Conqueror. Archon the High Lord, you know, like yeah. there's different, you know, it's Conan. Oh my gosh, series, I feel like yeah. now you need to pitch that uh, that story <laughs> to someone until that was the. Well, you know, I've been putting them together and, and kind of collecting my thoughts and, and, and trying to figure out what I want to do with them and, and maybe there's there's a graphic novel, I think there's a graphic novel in there. Yeah. I, I mean, as I was talking to Nathan, I was like, I kind of want to do it and I think I know who the artist is that I would I would want to work with. And nice. Yeah, well, we know, we know quite a few time. writers here in the, in the building we worked with. I know Jim Zub has been doing great work with yeah. the uh, Baldur's Gate I love those uh, comics. Thing. And yeah. he's got, you know, he's, everybody's knocking on his door. So you can be another one of those and be like, all right, okay. make it happen. Well, maybe you can get me to the front of the line. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, uh, I, I think that's all we can talk about as far as uh, Archon, Archon and uh, uh, Critical Role and what's been happening now. Um, excited to work with you a lot more in the future. Thanks. I think we've got lots of fun things we're planning, uh, events-wise. Yeah, uh, uh, as stuff I we can't to. talk about yeah. right now. But it's it's uh, really exciting. <laughs> it's just great having you uh, uh, be a part of this community, and you obviously have a love for uh, for Dungeons and Dragons and the characters that you create, and it just comes out in just everything you do. So thank you, man. Thanks, man. I'm so passionate about it. I just love it. I, I love the community. It's just such a great group of creative, passionate, uh, just just welcoming, awesome people. And, uh, and I love being a part of it. Thanks, man. All right. See what you missed? That was pretty good, I will admit. Yeah. He uh, is a good talker. He can talk about Dungeons & Dragons. Did he ask about me? He did. He's like, where is Shelly? Where... But, but you didn't get that. Um, you didn't record oh, that yeah. part? Oh, yeah. No. Actually, in fact, I specifically asked Ryan to make sure that you was cut not, that out, not in the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Because, right. you know, I just didn't want um, you to feel loved. Right. That's your job. <laughs> No, it's not true. He did ask about you for real, but it was off mic. It was just more of a, oh, I thought we were going to talk to Sean, too. Oh, man. Yeah. She's not here? He was bummed. Yeah. Okay, that was a good impression. Okay, do it again. Oh, man. I don't know how to do it now. (laughs) Nailed it. Did he talk about when he turned into a minotaur and killed me in my own game? Uh, No, he did not uh, mention that specific anecdote, but uh, he did talk about uh, uh, playing Dungeons & Dragons with me, though, so I guess. Oh, well, he played Betrayal at Baldur's Gate with me. In a playtest. Right, before it was even a thing, before yeah. anybody even knew it existed. Yep, and he killed us. Yeah, he does that a lot. Yeah. He's a mean, keen, uh, killing machine. Well, that was good. But it's really but fun uh, uh, to have him jump into talking about yeah. uh, D&D. I will always love uh, to... He's that guy that will uh, expound about uh, his character, uh, and uh, I, I love it when it intersects with uh, with everything else that's going on here uh, in, in the world, like Critical Role and other things. So yes. Really good stuff. He is a very um, prolific speaker about Dungeons & Dragons. Right. I who like would have thought? Did you yeah. even think that watching... Did you watch True Blood? I did. Yeah. Did yeah. you think that in your head? Like, oh, this guy, he plays yeah. D&D. I could see I'm like, he's a little too good at being a werewolf. <laughs> he's got some role-playing cred. Yeah, exactly. No, I didn't. I didn't. I'm completely surprised. But now it's like, oh, of course. And it's not even a new thing. Like, he's been playing D&D for years and years. And it's true. Just, now, it's, now, just he's, really... now he's free. Good yeah. stuff. All right, well, Shelly. my watch says that it's time for me to stand. How? So... Well, I should stand up uh, for Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> Uh, and uh, tell people how to get in touch uh, or find out more about what you're doing. You can find me on the Twitters at Shelly Moo. 
You can like my writer page on Facebook if you want to talk about The Bachelor. Alone. I like your writer page. You, I don't think you do. I did, but then I unfollowed because I didn't want Bachelor stuff in my feed. You're a jerk. <laughs> That's not true. You know what? As long as you know me, it's in your feed. <laughs> Crap. It's in your life feed. I know. I just I'd, I'd rather like to hear about it from you. Okay. Yeah. So please tell me tell me more. Let's follow we're gonna start writer, up our bachelor podcast. <laughs> follow my writer page. All right. I will. Uh, and you all should uh, who are listening at home. I am at Greg Tito uh, on Instagram at ungreg underscore Tito. I was just gonna say underscore. Just call me underscore. I have no fear. Underdog is here. here. <laughs> About three people got that reference. <laughs> Look at Ryan's just like nothing. He's nothing. Like, he's Googleizing. Uh, you can find out everything you want to know about Dungeons and Dragons at very many places, including uh, Wizards underscore D and D on Twitter. Oh. You can like our Facebook page. You can Instagram. download Instagram as well. Uh, Wizards underscore D and D there as well. Uh, or you can like. Um, uh, Dragonmag.com. Dragonmag.com. That's right. Dragon Plus that you can download it on iOS and on Android. Uh, there's a new issue out. Like I said in the intro, make it happen. Download it into your brain pan. You will not be disappointed. See, I I listen to you. You're a good That's listener. How I know. These I know. Uh, when we did our uh, our interview with Adam and Todd, they were saying that we didn't listen, but I don't think that's true. I think we're very good listeners. I think we are too. <laughs> yeah. All right. So they're not ever uh, going to be asked on again. And um, well, you don't just insult the host while you're on the show. Uh, I know, right? It's, it's bad news bears. But we'll have them back. No, they're good people. We're just joking. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we are going to uh, close this out uh, with Rocks Falling. No, no. Oh, yeah.